Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Andy Callis. I am the student pastor here. If you don't know me, glad to have you with us this morning as we worship. I want to begin this morning uh, just talking with you about an experience that I had early in my first semester of college in one of the first classes that I had. And uh, I don't know why I thought this, but I was, I was sitting in a classroom with a bunch of people that I didn't know, who didn't know me. I was in a different state. I didn't know anybody else from my state who had traveled to the school that I had picked for my freshman year of college. And just kind of out of the blue, I was looking around and I had this thought, nobody here cares who I am. And I was like, hmm. And it, and it rattled me. And it, it kind of shocked me because so much of what I had lived for in high school was to build a reputation for myself, to make a name for myself. I thought that that was going to be what satisfied my soul, what brought me happiness, what brought me pleasure. And, and here I was in this classroom in Tennessee, and I kind of thought, man, all, and, and, and I I did a lot of sinful things, too, to make sure that that would happen to the best of my ability. And here I sat, and I was kind of like, for what? To be here as an unknown, with no reputation, with no name whatsoever. And it, it was gone. And even though I had, as much as I could, felt like I realized my goal in my hometown, here I was, and I'd lost it. And I thought that I would find happiness, I would find satisfaction in a name and I felt this sense of loss because I felt like my name was gone. Ravi Zacharias has said, the loneliest moment in life is when you experience what you thought could deliver you and it let you down. And I just knew making a name for myself that that was going to deliver me. That was gonna do what I needed to be satisfied in this life. That's what I was looking for and I was kind of shocked and I, I realized, well, this isn't it. And it was kind of devastating and so I thought, well, it, it's got to be in something else. And so I started looking in other places. And the Bible calls this idolatry, by the way. I thought, well, this, this so-called God's not working. So let me look around and see if I can find a different God that's going to bring the deliverance, the satisfaction, the joy that I'm looking for. So I looked for what so many students look for, the four Gs, grades, games, girls, and goals. I thought, you know, if I, can make, if I can make the grades I want, I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. If I can get the girl that I want, if I can win the game, if I can attain the goal, those are the things that are going to satisfy me and deliver me. And I started to find out one thing at a time, but as I chased after these different things, none of them would deliver the promise that I thought was going to be found in them. I found out the hard way what Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, 7, when he said that these idols that we cry out to, they cannot deliver and they cannot save. They're not God enough. They make great promises, but they don't deliver. And so at the end of all this searching, I was slow to learn, but at the end of all this searching, much like Solomon after he went through all of his searching in Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes 12, he says, you know what, I realized there was one thing to fear God and keep his commandments. And I finally came to that realization and found that happiness and pleasure resided in God alone. It says in Psalm 16:11, you made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures in your right hand. What I want to challenge you with this morning is where do you turn for happiness, for pleasure, 
Where do you turn for deliverance? What do you think really is gonna satisfy your heart? And today I hope to challenge you in your hearts with these questions. And I know that everybody in here knows what they're supposed to say or what we're supposed to think. We're supposed to say, well, that's Jesus. He's the one who totally satisfies my heart. Well, that's God. That's the Holy Spirit. Well, that's eternal things. But I want to challenge you to think past just what you're supposed to say and think about, but what, where is my heart at when I think about these things? And what does my life reflect when I think about what truly satisfies? What is it I am chasing after? Today we're going to look at the topic of hedonism, which really encapsulates this struggle. And it is a struggle. It's the pursuit of happiness and pleasure above all else. It's the ultimate. Happiness and pleasure how can I get it? That's what I want. And is that what life is about? And is that what life is worth living for? We're going to look at this secular God called hedonism and see if it can really deliver on its promises. Before we go any further, though, let me pray for us, and then we'll keep going on this topic. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship and to hear from your word. Um, living on this earth, God, it's a struggle. It's a struggle in many ways. There are a lot of Gods, there are a lot of idols that are calling out to us, making great promises to us, and we're so tempted, God, by our flesh, by our sinful nature, to be drawn that direction and to chase after those things. I pray by the power of your spirit you would help us not to. Instead, may we chase after you with reckless abandon. Pray that you would teach us this morning, help us to analyze our hearts and where we're at, God, and just pray that you'd be at work in Jesus' name, amen. So to kind of give you some, um, some background on this before we go further, so last fall, uh, we did a study called Jesus Among Secular Gods with the youth. And we talked about secularism. We talked about its so-called gods that so many people follow. And much of what I share with you today is going to be from this resource by Ravi Zacharias and a guy named Vince Vitale. And uh, it's a great resource. You should check it out. But two of the things that we were, we were wanting to do with the students, aim number one is we wanted them to live out 1 Peter 3.15, which is we wanted them to be able to give a reason for the hope that they had in Christ. We wanted them to be able to uh, let others know, their friends and, and those that they're around, that Christianity is not an ignorant faith. Christianity is not a faith that doesn't have any answers. Christianity has a lot of satisfying answers to the questions that people are asking about life. And so we wanted them to know that. Secondly, we wanted students to be on guard against these so-called gods of the secular age because they're tempting for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us, because of our own sinful nature, we're drawn into these different gods. And so we looked at secularism and we defined it. What is secularism? Secularism is indifference, rejection, or exclusion of religion. It comes from a Latin root word meaning this worldly. Basically, what you see is what you get. Just the things on this earth, there's nothing beyond this world. Solomon defined it as life under the sun in Ecclesiastes. There's no life above or beyond the sun. It's just the things of this earth. No spiritual, nothing beyond the grave, just the physical. It's just the here and now. That is secularism. And our culture has bought into this view, hook, line, and sinker, which we'll look at here in a second. Some of the different gods of secularism that we studied were atheism, that there is no God. Scientism, that science explains everything, so there's really no need for God. Pluralism, all paths in life are equally valid. Your religion is fine and so is mine, even if they contradict, they're both valid. Relativism, truth is relative and not absolute. Your truth might be different than my truth, but that's okay. Humanism, man decides the best way to live. 
Man is the pinnacle of all the universe, so he can call the shots and he can make the rules and decide what's best. All of these views fall under secularism, and all of these views are atheistic at their core. They're without God. So we talked about some of the key worldview questions that everyone is asking, and people are, everyone is trying to answer. The first one is origin. Where did we come from? The second is meaning. Why are we here? The third one is morality. How am I supposed to live? And the fourth one is destiny. Where am I going? Everybody is asking these questions. And so we talked about in the Christian worldview, people might not like it, but the Christian worldview gives great answers for all of these questions. Why secularism gives less than satisfying answers and a lot of times just makes you ask more questions and kind of leaves you scratching your head. But we also talked about, as I said before, that nonetheless, even though Christianity has great answers for these questions that we're asking in our souls and in our hearts, there's this appeal to our sinful nature and to our flesh as we look at these secular gods because there's times where we want to live like there's no God. It's like, man, if there just wasn't a God, I could do whatever I wanted to do. We want to determine truth for ourselves. You know, I don't know if this is right or not, but by golly, I just want to do it. I want to decide what's right. We want to be the masters of our own destiny at times. So all of these ideas have appeal to us. And today, I would say that the most attractive secular God to us is that of hedonism. So we're going to look more closely at what hedonism is, how to define it, how prevalent it is in our society. So let's look at hedonism. A simple definition for hedonism would be whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you happy. Life is ultimately about happiness and pleasure. And you hear this everywhere you go. Well, is it going to make you happy? Well, okay, well, then you should go for it. Well, as long as they're happy. If they're happy, then it's all good. You hear that in so many different places. Uh, it makes me think of, I'll date myself a little bit here, a song back in the mid-90s by Cheryl Crow, or Kennett, Missouri native. And she sang a song that rose to the top ten called If It Makes You Happy. They still play that probably at Walmart or something every now and again, you know. If it makes you happy, she said in the song, it can't be that bad. What a philosophical thought there. Is, is that really true? I mean, is that our purpose in life? If it makes you, just go for your happiness. And if it makes you happy, that's good. That's what you were created for. Well, if we look around at our culture, you would think that, yeah, that's, that's kind of how everybody is operating. We pursue happiness and pleasure in so many different things in our society. I'm going to list a few. One of them is in stuff. Or materialism. We just came through the holiday season, and why this can be a great time uh, to reflect on thankfulness and to reflect on the birth of Christ and many great things like that. Oftentimes, what does it mean? It means spending more money on stuff, and it reflects our desire for happiness in getting things. Last year, Americans spent over one trillion dollars on holiday retail sales. That's a one with 12 zeros after it. That's a lot. The average household spends about $1,500 on gifts, food, and entertainment during the holiday season, the, the one month that we call the holiday season. And of course, most of us cannot remember anything that you maybe can remember what you got last week, but how about last year? If you can even remember what you received or what you bought for somebody, it's probably not that great anymore. It might be broken. It's not as shiny. It's not as appealing anymore. It's pretty unimpressive. But new stuff makes great boasts, and in the end, it really leaves us just wanting more new stuff, and it becomes a cycle. So we have stuff. We see our hedonistic tendencies in our stuff. What about substances? 
Drug and alcohol use oftentimes reflect our desire for happiness and pleasure. In 2016, Americans spent $150 billion on illicit drugs and $227 billion on alcohol. Now there are nearly 20 million Americans who are addicted to these substances because they thought this God is going to provide me deliverance, relief, happiness, and now they're controlled by it. What about sexual pleasure? In a report by Covenant Eyes, it's estimated that 28,000 people are watching pornography every second, and $3,000 are spent on it every single second. They report that Christians oftentimes buy into this lie as well. 50,000 pastors are currently consuming, struggling with pornography. Two out of three Christian men are watching it on a monthly basis. Again, sexual pleasure calling out, you will be satisfied with this, but oftentimes it becomes an enslaving venture. How about entertainment? The average amount of money spent on general entertainment per household, not including vacation and things like that, is about $2,500. This is concerts, sporting events, theme parks, bowling alleys, home-based entertainment, golf, movies, things like that. In fact, the highest grossing film of all time was just recently shown in 2019. Many of you probably went to see it, Marvel's Endgame. I didn't see it, heard it was a great movie. It brought in $2.8 billion at the box office alone, almost $3 billion. And when I hear numbers like that or like Americans spend a trillion dollars, I, I think, wow, that's, that's so much money. What could that money have done elsewhere? Well, we sponsor two compassion kids in the youth group we have for years, and that's to the tune of about $75 a month. And I thought, man, how much money could almost $3 billion, how many compassion kids could that support? Six million compassion kids for one year. It's just astounding the money that we spend on entertainment and other things that we think, this is going to provide the pleasure that I need. How about screen time? The average teenager spends seven hours on screens a day. This does not include school. Adults might, might not be much better, but it's tough to find research on that because I think they don't want to be found out that they're a lot like kids. <laughs> But I think that's true when we really think about it. We feel the need to always be plugged in, always be plugged in. We, gotta be, we have to have something that's constantly coming at us, keeping us entertained. Studies on teenage culture with spending and entertainment and substances, it's not much different than adults. Are we a hedonistic society? Are we seeking pleasure, comfort, ease, entertainment? Yes, we certainly are. We're, we're looking for those things. The question is, why do we spend so much money? Why do we spend so much time on this stuff? And I would say it's because it's where our hearts are at. If there's nothing beyond this life and secularism is true, then our hearts are bound to this earth, period. There, let's get everything we can out of this earth. What does it have to offer? Because there's no other option. As Christians, if we begin to forget where our real treasure lies then we too start to just live for the pleasures of this earth. Matthew six nineteen through 21. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and that's the problem. It's where our heart is at. The problem is not pleasure, the problem is not happiness. God created those things. He designed those things to be part of our lives. But, as Ravi Zacharias said once again, it's when we forget that pleasure is a sacred privilege. When we forget that 
Pleasure is a sacred privilege, and it has to be done in God's orderly way. That's when we get out of whack, and it becomes a God rather than a gift. It's when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, and then it degrades to a godless thing. And we can be quick to make idols out of God's good gifts to humanity. This made me think of uh, just a few months ago, for the first time in about 10 years or so, I got to take a trip with my family down to the beach in August, and, uh, and it was great. So in, in the morning, we would go down to the beach and hang out and float in the water and do beach things, and then we would come back to the house and we would eat, and in the afternoon, we would swim in the pool and we would relax, and then at night, we'd go out to eat, and you know what we did the next day? The same thing, and we did it again, and we did it again. And at first, I thought, this is a great gift. Wow, what a privilege that we're, we're able to do this and I could even tell subtly, by the end of the week, I started to feel like this was not just a gift or a privilege. This is something I really needed more of in my life. And if I don't get it, there's going to be problems. And so as we left, over the course of really just five days, and we left and we're going back home, and I feel I'm kind of in a bad mood, and I, I sort of don't want to come back, and I'm trying to kind of analyze, like, what is going on with me? And I started to realize I took what was a good gift, and I made it an ultimate thing, and I started to worship it and think, I've got to have this. This is a need. And my wife, who can always tell when something's wrong with me, every time, she's a great wife. Sometimes I don't want her to know, but she can always tell. She could tell that something was wrong with me, and, and so I started to talk with her just about some of the things that I was thinking about, and she had just a very insightful thought. She has a lot of those, too, that helped me. And she said, you know, I really loved the trip too, and I loved everything that we got to do, but I kept in mind the entire time, this is temporary. This is going to end. And I enjoyed it for a time, but I know that this can't be worshipped, and it's not permanent. And I thought, man, what a great insight as we think about earthly pleasures. Should this be and can this be enjoyed for a time? Sure it can. But we have to remember, this is temporary, and this life is temporary. We cannot put all of our treasure here, it's not going to last. It's fleeting. Again, Zechariah says, happiness is very fluctuating and, and a fleeting thing. We reach for it, and it's gone. We think we've got it over here, and then it's gone. And if we continue to reach in the wrong places, we just worship idol after idol and become enslaved to that pursuit. Again, in Psalm 1611, eternal pleasures and joy, where are they found? Eternal ones, ones that last, where are they found? In the hand of God. We can't find them here on earth, so don't tether your hearts here on earth. And we find in Scripture the ultimate example of someone who kept earthly pleasures in their place. He had eternal things in mind throughout his entire earthly life. In fact, he did this perfectly. He was so bought into the idea that eternal pleasures far outweighed earthly pleasures, he was even willing to sacrifice earthly pleasures for eternal ones. He was willing to forego earthly pleasures so that he could, because he knew that eternal pleasures were more valuable. And this can be such a foreign concept in our culture and even in our churches today. Sacrifice, willing to forego pleasures of this earth because we have our sights set on eternal ones. But that's exactly what Jesus did. But how about this? To compare Jesus to ourselves. So oftentimes we're so hedonistic, we're so bent on our own personal pleasure and happiness. What if Jesus decided to be like that? What if he came to earth and he decided, you know what? 
In Matthew 4, when Satan tempted to live for all the pleasures of the world, he's like, you know what? I think you're right. I'm going to live for my own personal happiness. That's my ultimate goal. And he said, that's what I'm living for. Whatever comes easiest, my own personal comfort, I'm going to do what everybody else does down here. That's, what, that's going to be my mission. What would the world have missed out on if Jesus decided to be as hedonistic as this world is and as we can be? Well, let's look at that question. What if Jesus was a hedonist? What if that was his pursuit? And his masters were pleasure, comfort, and the avoidance of pain. What if that was Jesus' primary objective in his life? Well, A, the world and mankind never would have been created. If that was what he was shooting for, his pleasure, comfort, and the avoidance of pain, he never would have created mankind. Here's what we see in Scripture as we look at the Trinity. They're having a great time without us. Things were great relationally within the Trinity. Fellowship and union was perfect. It was a comfortable, enjoyable relationship that Jesus got with the Father and the Holy Spirit. They never would have created man. We see some glimpses of their relationship in the Gospels, John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. They had this perfect, loving relationship. John 10.15, just as the, as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. They knew one another intimately. They knew one another perfectly. All things that we strive for relationally and we can't get, they had it. In Luke 10, 21, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. They had this joy that was interchanged between one another. They praised one another. This was a perfect relationship with perfect love. And why would you introduce mankind into the mix knowing that pain was going to be involved? Jesus wouldn't have. If hedonism was his ultimate pursuit, he certainly wouldn't have introduced mankind into the mix of his life. B, he wouldn't have left his heavenly home. He wouldn't have left his heavenly home. In heaven, Jesus was perfectly worshipped. He was perfectly honored. He was constantly told that he was worthy, perfectly respected. A hedonist would never leave a situation like that. Turn with me, if you'd like to, in Revelation 5, verses 6 through 14. And we're going to see a picture of what Jesus left to come to earth. Revelation 5, verses 6 through 14. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of, of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
everyone is worshiping Jesus in heaven. Everyone is saying he is worthy. But he traded that. He traded that in for life here on this earth. What did he trade that in for? What did he receive when he got here? Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He traded worship for rejection. He traded comfort for suffering and pain. He traded honor to be despised. If you're a hedonist, you don't do that because your ultimate goal is your own personal pleasure and happiness. You want to avoid pain. You want to avoid rejection. But Jesus embraced those things. How about C? He would have avoided the general hardships of this earth. He would have avoided the general hardships of this earth. We know this. Earth is not an easy place to live. It's broken. It's fallen. As sin entered the picture, there's death and destruction and all kinds of problems. Just living here in our broken system was difficult for Jesus to do. When Jesus did his ministry, according to Luke 9:58, he was homeless. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He experienced that hardship. He experienced frustration with a friend. He had a dear but confused disciple when Peter said, oh, that can't be your mission, Jesus. He said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. He experienced frustration in relationships, according to Mark chapter 8, verse 33. He experienced anger and injustice. He had these unjust authorities like the scribes and the Pharisees that were leading the people astray, that were contradicting everything that he was trying to do and say. And he was angry at them, according to Matthew 23, 13. He experienced the deep sadness over the death of a friend like when Lazarus died, according to John 35. So he experienced all these things on our planet that are not comfortable. But Jesus came, he experienced these hardships because hedonism was not his ultimate goal. If it was, he never would have went looking for these hardships and came here. D, he wouldn't have went looking for trouble. He wouldn't have went looking for trouble. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Jesus seemed to go out of his way at times to put himself in difficult situations. It needed to happen, but oftentimes, if you're a hedonist, you're not going to do that. It's too hard. He healed people seven different times on the Sabbath, knowing that this would infuriate the Pharisees because they did not understand the point of the Sabbath. One of them, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus knows he's being watched by the Pharisees at the synagogue. He heals a man who has a withered hand, and right after he does this, and he does it on the Sabbath, he infuriates the Pharisees and the scribes and say, how can we get rid of this guy? Let's destroy this guy. He went out of his way to show them, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You need to know this. Jesus went looking for difficult situations when he needed to. Another story is the story of the demon-possessed man in Mark 4 and 5. And this is interesting when you think about it from this angle. Mark 4, 1, it says a very large crowd was following Jesus and was listening to him. Though he's telling parables and stories to them until evening. Everybody's hanging on his every word. They're probably like, Jesus, don't leave. And, and I'm sure the disciples are thinking things are going great. We've got a captive audience here. You know, everybody is hanging on your every word. They're in awe of you. This would be a hedonist dream. Everybody is giving me fame and um, popularity. But we find something interesting toward the end of Mark chapter 4 and verse 36. It says, Jesus leaves the crowds and gets in a boat to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I wonder if the disciples had to be like, um, why are we doing that? Like, the crowds here, 
They love us. They're hanging on your every word. We're big time. Like, why are we getting in a boat and going to the other side? And we see in the very next verse that as soon as they do that, a terrible storm comes, and the disciples think, we're dead. The, the ship is going to sink. It's going to break in half. They wake Jesus up. Jesus gets up. He shows his power over nature. He calms the storm. But that wasn't his only reason for going across the sea. Otherwise, he could have turned around, went back to the crowd, and said, hey, let's, let's you know, have these people listen to us once again and gather around us. He continues to go to the other side of the sea. And we see why in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. You can continue reading the story later. Many of you probably know it. But essentially, Jesus cast many demons out of this man who had been tormented and sent them into a herd of pigs, 2,000 of them. They go barricading off of a a cliff, and they drown themselves in the sea. And this man is found in his right mind. He's been set free by Jesus, and he's forever changed. He's like, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus says, no, I want you to stay put. I want you to tell everybody what God has done for you here where you live. And when the story's over, we see something interesting in verse 21. In Mark five twenty-one, when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So Jesus is with a large crowd by the lake. He goes across the sea. Their boat about sinks. Disciples think we're going to die. They go over and they find this one man, this one tormented man. Jesus heals him. Jesus saves him. And then he comes right back where he started, and the crowd gathers once again. If you're a hedonist, you don't make that trip. You don't go across the sea for one person. They're not important enough because you're the most important person. Your personal happiness, comfort, popularity, pleasure, that's number one. So you don't go out of your way for one person. But that's exactly what Jesus did. He was willing to sacrifice comfort and pleasure and fame so that he could save. He said in Luke four nineteen that he fulfilled the prophecy, which says proclaim, he wanted to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's why he was sent, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Jesus was willing to find trouble and to sacrifice whatever it took to save those that are, in misery, that are in misery. Hedonists don't do that. They take the easy road. They're self-absorbed. They don't have an eye on other people and their hardships. But Jesus was no hedonist. And thank God that he wasn't, because how the world would have missed out if Jesus was like we are so oftentimes, if he would have opted for personal pleasure, for personal comfort, for the avoidance of pain, how the world would have missed out. So Jesus set the example but he calls us to follow it, too. Jesus calls us to more than hedonism. He calls us to more than hedonism. Our culture doesn't. Our culture says, hey, live for yourself. Be comfortable. Do what's easy. Think about you. But Jesus calls us to more. There's a story in a resource by Vince Vitale. He goes around. He speaks at many college campuses and, and, uh, talks about, and does some apologetic talks uh, with students, and he tells about a story when he was at Oxford University, 
And there was a student he was reaching out to, and he was excited because he felt like, I think this student is understanding the message of Christianity. I think he's being drawn to Christ. And he gets together with him, being excited about where he thought he was at. But he said, then I realized that this student did not understand it. When he said to me, hey, this is great, everything that I'm learning about Jesus and all, but I was just thinking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And that's when he realized he does not understand the message of Christ. But that's the mantra of this world and of our flesh. Hey, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? It's all about self. The world says be yourself, express yourself, look after yourself, and treat yourself. But you know what Jesus says? He says to deny yourself. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, and note that he doesn't say whoever wants to be a missionary, whoever wants to be a preacher, whoever wants to be a church leader. He says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to call yourself a Christian, here's what you have to do. You must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, why did Jesus do that, though? Why did he deny himself, and why does he call us to, to do the same thing? It's because we know, according to God's word, there is more to life than what we can see. There is more to life just than the here and now that's right in front of us. We believe that this life is a mist, like James said in James 4.14 when he said, What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We believe that this life is temporary. We don't put all our eggs in this basket. We believe that earthly pleasures are a gift. They're not a God. They're not to be pursued at all costs, but God is to be pursued at all costs, no matter what it costs. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So we have a choice to make, and both come with a cost. I want to be clear about that. There's a cost no matter what you choose. You can live for this world, or you can live for the next one, but both come at a price. You can love the world and you can love everything that's in it to try to find your happiness. John boiled this down to basically three categories of things in 1 John 2.16. He said, for all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So what's the best thing that those things can offer you? John tells us in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John says the best thing that these things can do for you, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, if you get as much of those as you can, at best it's fleeting. At best it's temporary. At best it's not going to last. On the contrary, though, John says, but whoever does the will of God, that person abides forever. They're like, okay, well, I want to do that. What is that? What is the will of God? Well, Jesus summed it up very nicely in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40. He had someone that came to him and said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Essentially, what is it that I need to do with my life? What's the best thing that I could do? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So if you want to do the will of God, you want to do something that's lasting, love God, love others, and deny yourself. So, again, we have a choice. We can live for self. We can live for pleasure, comfort, all the ease that the world can provide, or we can live for God, and we can live for the pleasure, the comfort, and the ease that he can provide. One is temporary. One is eternal. Where are you going to put your efforts? 
There's a guy named Oscar Wilde, lived in the late 1800s. He was an Irish poet, he was a playwright, and he was known for his flamboyant lifestyle and his pursuit of pleasure. And here's what he had to say after living life like that toward the end of his life. He said, I allowed pleasure to dominate me and I ended in horrible disgrace. His hedonistic pursuit came with a regretful cost because again, there's a cost, there's a price to be paid whichever path you choose. Or will you end like the Apostle Paul who was known for experiencing all the hardships that life had to offer, but he did it for Christ's sake and here's what he had to say in the end in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will appoint to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. His pursuit of pleasure was found in Christ and in eternity and it left him with no regrets. Both men paid a price but only one was worth it. So I want to ask you as we close our time, which price are you going to pay? And it is a daily temptation. It's a daily battle to chase after Christ and pursue him at all costs versus chasing after self and pursuing what I want on my own ease, comfort, and pleasure and avoidance of pain at all costs. But that's the question that we have to ask and the battle we need to fight every day. Hedonism, it's the pursuit of personal pleasure and happiness above all else. And I will tell you from God's word and from experience, it does not deliver. It's self-centered, it's temporary, and it's godless at its core. If that was Jesus' ultimate purpose, we never would have known him. He never would have created us. He never would have came to this broken place that we live on to be despised and rejected by us. But he did, and he did it because he had a greater purpose it was worth sacrificing the gods of ease, of pleasure, of comfort. He was going to glorify God above all else, and he purchased the souls of mankind by his blood. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, it says in Hebrews 12, 2. So he found a joy that reached beyond the necessary hardships of this life. He calls us to do the same thing. Don't end up like I did in that classroom. I spent so much time, I spent so much effort and energy on me my personal pleasure and comfort. And my God of hedonism, it didn't deliver me. I was shocked. I tried to find other ones. They didn't either. Don't end up like Oscar Wilde at the end of his life where he ended in horrible disgrace because all he had done is focus on himself and what he wanted, what he thought would make him happy. Be like Paul, who went through all the hardships that were needed to pursue Christ at all costs. Be like Jesus, who did everything to win our salvation. Love God, love other people, deny yourself. It's worth the cost. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess before you today, it's difficult. It's difficult to pursue after you. You knew that it would be. You, you, you tell us up front, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Taking up a cross daily is not easy. But you call us to do that. You call us to follow the example of Christ. I pray that you would give us the power and the strength and the wisdom to do that each and every day, God, to not be tricked, to not be fooled, to not be deceived by the, the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this world. May we enjoy those things, but may we enjoy them as a gift, not as an ultimate thing, not as a need, not as a right, 
but something that is always done with you in mind, knowing that every good gift comes from you. It's not something to be worshipped. You are to be worshipped. Help us to do that, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.